This is the Degressio Podcast of Roman Roads Press, helping Christian families inherit the humanities. I'm Cooper Simmon, and I'm here with my co-host, Daniel Fukushan, founder and CEO of Roman Roads. Great to be here. Joining us in the studio is Rusty Olps. He has administrated and taught at several classical Christian schools, is the board member of Lewis and Clark Christian School, the board president of Jubilee School here in Moscow, and he is also on the board of Concordus, a company which supports classical Christian schools. He is also a homeschooling dad of six. Thanks. Good to be here. The list of schools that you're involved in is very long. So what got you uh, originally involved with classical Christian education, interested in classical Christian education? I became aware of classical Christian education probably during college. Uh, my father would listen to uh, Doug Wilson's sermon tapes, and so we would hear about things that were going on up in Moscow. And so uh, it became a goal to get up here at some point. And so I did that right after college. I finished a degree in business. And among the classes I took, um, just sort of a, a smorgasbord at NSA, was Doug's class on classical Christian education, where I read a lot of history and a lot of uh, pedagogy and that kind of thing. And so right after that, I took a job as a classical school administrator and later teacher in that school. Nice. Uh, how long did you administrate and teach there? I was just there maybe about two and a half years. Okay. And then uh, you taught at Logos, uh, the brick and mortar school? Yes. Later Moscow? on, I ended up uh, moving back to Moscow uh, and taking a job at uh, Logos School where I taught uh, a number of different subjects. So through all of that, through the administration and teaching, um, what did you learn about the art and science of educating students? What did you say were your main kind of takeaways from, from those jobs were? Well, I took away a lot of the best of classical education. It was hugely instrumental in my thought. I mean, I remember calling guys like uh, Matt Whitling in desperation from Jackson, Mississippi, <laughs> please tell me how to do this or that. Um, I would uh, take away um, people like uh, Tom Garfield taught me the seven laws of teaching. You know, lots of good uh, ACCS style training, mm. lots of good um, – general educational training. Uh, yeah, so the the frustrating elements were not particular to any of these schools. It was always mm. the more general uh, elements that I would struggle with, either as an administrator or a teacher. Um, I didn't have the categories to understand what it was I was frustrated with, but the frustrations were... Um, related to the structures and forms of education. So I did come away with a lot of questions mm. as well as a lot of awesome content. Mm. So you said that it was kind of hard to formulate some of the things that you felt like you were bump bumping up against, um, some of the frustrations of the big picture systems. Um, how, like how would you describe some of those frustrations or shortcomings? Well, I think... I think most good teachers will be frustrated by uh, the goal of or the necessity, I would rather say, of teaching to the middle. For instance, if you have mm -hmm. a classroom with 25 kids, you feel like you're hitting 
nobody in particular. Um, You know, you're losing kids on the, on the slow end and Mm. you're losing kids on the fast end. Mm. And they call it the mythical middle for a reason. It's kind of like aim for the middle, but what, what are you actually hitting? Um, Mm. So that was a, that was a classroom dynamic that was frustrating. The constant movement from class to class was not conducive. Like the, the literal, like picking up and moving to a different physical, classroom. Yeah. The traffic mm. patterns of a school huh. where you would, we were told to integrate in the humanities, but then a bell rings every 50 minutes. And mm. so you get up and you move from geography mm. to history to a, a, a war class or, you know, some other ultimately artificial division. That was frustrating as a teacher. Mm. Yeah. So you are a homeschool dad right now, yeah. and and yet you had um, were involved in traditional um, schools at the beginning of your career. Um, maybe describe that shift and where you went from traditional schools to um, to being a homeschooler today, and and um, and then the, the the educational entities you're a part of. Yeah, and are those homeschool or not? With those those educational institutions, right? So. I think I I was a very gung-ho apologist for the traditional um, classical Christian school, and I would still be an apologist for the the distinctly classical and Christian components, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which I would distinguish from the incidentals, such as moving kids from one class to the other. I I think those were incidentally adopted during the classical school movement. Um. When I was ready to educate my own children, uh, I had determined a couple things that were important to me, some of them incidental probably to the podcast. I, I, didn't, I wasn't excited about dividing my kids up um, in terms of our family life. I liked mm-hmm. the idea of um, a lot of time together with siblings. And I knew mm-hmm. that if I sent my, my oldest son to a traditional school, I, I wouldn't see him all day long. And then he would come home with homework. And, um, that's a fine option for some people, but I was concerned about that. Yeah. Um, and then as I developed my, my own philosophy of education, that, uh, the flexibility of homeschool based education, uh, was viewed more as a conviction versus just a, a simple preference um, I don't think it, it's a right or wrong question necessarily. It depends mm-hmm. on the kid, but right. I was very concerned about the actual student and what do they need? And then thinking, okay, I've got six kids and each one is going to learn at his own pace or her own pace. And they're going to develop at different paces. And sure enough, I mean, I, I've got six kids and they are wildly variant and we are consciously facilitating their variability instead of trying to force them into uh, a box based on their age. Um, mm. I w- some kids are going to learn how to read at four, some at seven, eight, and I'm okay with that. Mm. So you want your educational options to actually be able to play to those strengths and help those weaknesses. Exactly. So slight, slight tangent from kind of the main thing that we're going to be talking about, but um where did we get the assumption? So every, every school, you look at almost every single school in America and they have this 
system of age based, you know, you're, you know, you're 13. So you go into this grade, you are studying this, you study this subject in this room and another subject, another room, um, and the bells and the, um, you know, this, this system, like, where did we, where did we get that? Where did that come from? Has that, is that the way that, uh, children have always been educated or is that a new innovation? Yeah, it's, it's certainly not the way that kids were always educated. You know, the, the convenient whipping boy for the modern system is Prussia. It's convenient because it no longer exists. <laughs> Nobody knows any Prussians to offend, right? Except prejudiced to... They were very carefully dismantled after World War II, the state of Prussia in particular. So um, it, come, it does, as far as I can tell, the Prussians were the innovators who came up with um, the system of both uh, the universal aspiration. So having everybody educated and then creating systems that are very reminiscent of um, factories or industrialization, um, militaristic goals. Mm. Um, they were in a lot of ways the, the, the best uh, in terms of um, both their ambitions and their accomplishments. I mean, the Prussian models of education, the actual schools and their curriculum are enviable if you read about what they were doing. And in a lot of ways, uh, similar to other um, education models of that era. The people who were doing it were doing things that we can only aspire to because of our immediate context, whatever whatever it is, whether it's TV and attention spans or just low ambition. We're not learning multiple languages. You know, we're not. Oh. So they were actually accomplishing a lot. They were accomplishing a lot. Not not hmm. not the same across the board. So they had they had different schools. At the top, there was the gymnasium. And then there was um, there was a school targeting um, the more bureaucratic professional elite, and then there was just the the Volksschulen, I think it was called, which was just school for everybody. Um, in my opinion, that that lowest school is most reminiscent of what we experience, um, but it's it, it still outpaced a lot of our aspirations. Mm. So it's not all bad. I mean, it, oh, I say. So, I, so they I got results. Like, uh, it got results. Yeah. yeah. Um, what um, I mostly have heard reference to the Prussian model as a negative thing, as the instigator of our modern. What you're talking about is more the the, the lower school, the common school. Right. Um, uh, at their best, uh, how much of their best is would we want today? in how we educate our, our kids. It, it, I mean, is it the results? Do we want those same results or are the results merely impressive? That's a, that's a difficult question because you're, you'd have to divorce form and content, which is, mm. which is the singular problem in some ways. Uh, yeah. I, I think um, in terms of content though, insofar as you can divorce it from their forms and structures, I, they had enviable, Attributes. I mean, if I just mm. trust the people I'm reading. So, um, if I there's a book by Arthur Bott called Prussia and the German System of Education, um, published in 19 or 1868, it looks like. Uh, and so, this was one of the early studies, and this guy would have been super excited about it. Mm. And he goes into detail about what their schools are 
accomplishing, uh, including biblical languages, mm. German, Latin, Greek, French. I mean, just to name the languages that they're interested in teaching, uh, not to mention mathematics and, and such stuff like that. So there's, there's a lot of um, good accomplishment there. Mm. Um, I do wonder sometimes how much of that is accomplished by virtue of uh, the rigidity and high expectations, um, maybe too high of expectations in a similar way to maybe the way we would view Chinese schools. Mm. Right. Sure. They accomplish a lot and I would never have my kid in one. Right. So, so the, the content you would say, you know, it's hard to divorce those things, but the content was good. They were doing a lot, but you, and you know, most of the people who uh, think similarly take issue with the form of the education. Yeah. Well, I don't think they do. I think they, I think that part of the part of what's going on in the full history of Prussian education is uh, the aspirations were not simply uh, good classical Christian education. They were Christian, but everybody was, and they were in terms of educational goals, and they were um, classical because there wasn't anything else yet. Right. Um, but they were highly militaristic. You know, they were excited about. Um, nation state building, you know, it's like this, there's this sort of nation state competition that's developing in the 19th century that obviously plays out well into the 20th, mm. 21st. You can appreciate what the Spartans built as a society and yet not want us way, to yeah. be, um, yeah. as a militaristic society. I mean, they, they, they knew how to fight and yet did they know how to live well-balanced lives and society well lived? Right. Oh, I see. And I think a lot of the best history work that is popular and still in publication would focus on the problem of Horace Mann in particular, mm. uh, importing the Prussian model of education, which has become this thing that we don't like called public schools. And it had as its aspirations, certainly some degrees of secularization, um, you know, nation state identity over and against um, other concerns. And so you, you had this militaristic aspect and this mm-hmm. desire for conformity and mm-hmm. on the, on the really negative end, a desire to have a more of an unthinking populace in order to accomplish your goals of filling factories or filling uh, barracks. As a, and the unthinking kind of making people think less, was that an intentional goal or was that kind of just a result of this form of education. Uh, I don't know. I don't have primary source material that says that has that has quotes from Prussians saying that's oh. what they want to accomplish. Mm-hmm. I do know that historians uh, think that uh, the Prussian defeat by Napoleon in an 1806 was largely due to soldiers doing what they wanted, and so there was this concerted effort to mm-hmm. create. Um, especially among that lower level of the population that would be uh, on the ground, boots on the ground, um, higher uh, capacity and instinct for obedience and fast obedience Mm. and um, unthinking obedience. Mm. Maybe an attribute and at your lowest level of uh, soldiering. I don't know, but that's what some people think. And so I think there's movements within these various histories of this model of education, depending on what time it is, uh, what wars are going on, who's leading, um, what country you're in. Um, 
as well as so it's it's hard to paint with a, sure. a broad brush, yeah. but if you need to, I do think you have to kind of lay a lot of these problems at the feet of the Prussian mm. state, which mm. no longer exists. So, um, for in the Prussian model, and then later what was imported, um, what would you say is the goal of education um, uh, for these for the Prussian model, and and later as it was imported here? This would you say the stated goals or the incidental um, a little bit of maybe a little bit maybe of both. Both. <laughs> I, I do Excuse think I, I don't think we carry on any stated goal of right. how do we get people to stop thinking so much. Um, <laughs> well, how, I would say the what's the uh, um, what is the stated or maybe unstated, but um, in the positive sense so there's a there's a way we can impute uh no one is going to say we want people our citizenry to think less they aren't going to use that terminology um but uh to a to a prussian or even how it's come to us today um what's what is the the goal of education in in this model of education um how would they state it positively i think there's definitely the, the historical movement of getting everybody educated, universal education. Okay, yeah. Uh, so that's that's a goal that I think is positive to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, I think whether it, whether it's incidental or not, or incidental or intentional, depends on who you're talking to. But you can take an average um, aspiring teacher and and find out from them that they are. Um, frustrated by by the systems they have to operate within mm. um, because the system is limiting. Um, and so I think teachers are are peculiar in their interests. I think mm. schools um, kind of retreat to a position of, well, at least we know we know we're providing X. Um, and so it's, Maybe it's not what we want it to be, but it's better than it has been, or maybe it is positively good. Um, mm. So I, I, I don't know, um, honestly. Uh, you know, one of the things about institutions is that they tend to perpetuate for selfish reasons. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think everybody thinks that old schools and school systems are are missional anymore mm. uh, or vision focused. They're they're a lot about the preservation of um, their unions and their funding and their mm. positions. And so it's self-perpetuating. So I don't, in that scenario, like the American public school in general, I don't think you could, I don't think anybody would say that. And so I'm being a little bit psychoanalytical, but I do think that's what's going on in right. the American public school. And the classical school movement and other Christian schools, it's all over the place in terms of intentions. Certainly, Certainly one of the intentions is to better the the larger common school or public school system, uh, simply to provide more um, with the religious overtones. Interesting. Yeah, I wonder if, if it would be um, helpful to actually, because uh, I want to talk about some of those incidentals mm. and um, and you know, the subject was kind of like uh, uh, uncovering some of the um, assumptions, perhaps wrong assumptions we have in in some of our schools. Mm -hmm. Um, Perhaps we could start by uh, talking where I think we agree 
fairly universally with the modern classical Christian movement, mm. um, whether it's uh, Jubilee or Lewis Clark School that you're involved with, or Roman Rhodes and Kepler, or Logos School here in Moscow, or the you know several hundred ACCS schools, um, I think we agree in terms of um, what classical education is for, mm. what the goal of education is for, and what our discussion, I'd like to take it, is some of those incidentals and how it affects that goal. Um, but, um, so, so first of all, what, what is the goal of education for, for, uh, uh what is classical education, which is one of my favorite things to <laughs> oh, ask. Yeah. So actually I'm, I, uh, yeah. in our earlier, in an earlier podcast on what is classical education, I explained that I've asked every classical educator I've come across over the last five years, what is classical education? And there's never exactly the same answer. Um, and yet they do have the fundamentals in, in common. So I'm just going to put you on the spot. What is classical education? Mm. Fairly short answer. <laughs> in my mind like yeah, what to, to you yeah and, and to me. again again there's um uh classical education yeah. is one of those things that uh uh i i um there is a common thread in every answer i receive from all these different different people but i have received a slightly different answer from just about every single person i've asked so yeah uh there's not a yeah if a, i had to offer right answer a definition that that both describes some of the things we're trying to do and maybe is a little bit forward thinking as well as mm-hmm. maybe it's reflective of the existing movement too. I don't, I don't know, but I would say um, the word classical is helpful in the sense that it is, it is saying this is a thing that has existed before it's time tested, um, which provides a tremendous amount of value. Innovation obviously can be valuable as well, um, but classical is like this a healthy retreat like we we know that these things are important. we know that this method of teaching uh, has been tested and and proven itself valuable um, throughout history um, and so i I do think it's an amalgamation i don't I don't think there is a classical model of education. Mm. But there's certainly a host of things that we've learned over time. Um, and so in my definition, I would also include that there is, a, there, there is a classical form or a classical structure of education. Um, I think many, many schools have inherited a model that um, – is incidentally non-classical. So mm-hmm. if, if, so my, my definition includes forms and structures and administration. That's maybe what makes it unique. Otherwise it looks very similar to what you would read um, in, in contemporary classical education literature. Okay. So yeah, the, the, um, uh, that idea of, of in our previous episode, I, uh, I, the motto of Roman roads is inherit the humanities. And I like to think of classical education as inheritance is a, being a very important, probably mm-hmm. the most important part of that phrase. And that's that uh, looking to the past uh, rooted in the past and what's tried right. and true. So I, um, I, you know, again, I, I expected to agree and that's, <laughs> um, I, I like that take. Um, so uh, um, maybe we can turn to some of those incidentals that, um, a form uh, and structure. Uh, and, uh, yeah, a form yeah. and structure. The uh, what? Um, what have we inherited? Um, 
from perhaps um, um, undiscernedly along with everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it comes to the traditional modern, uh, uh, traditional school model, um, that, that is, that maybe s- sneaked in, snuck in, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, with the, uh, um, uh, along as we, cause it's just classical education yeah. would revive. What, what yeah. is, uh, what are some un, un, uh, assumptions we have that perhaps, well, maybe uh, if I can offer a brief quote from. Horace Mann himself. This, I, this I thought was incredibly helpful. This is from his report, um, which I couldn't find published, but I found it on the internet. Um, report of an educational tour in Germany and parts of Great Britain and Ireland, being part of the seventh annual report of Horace Mann, Esquire, so Secretary of the Board of Education, Massachusetts, United States, 1844. Hmm. And so in his report, where he's basically summarizing his findings from his grand tour, which includes Prussia, he says this, if Prussia can pervert the benign influences of education to the support of arbitrary power, we surely can employ them for the support and perpetuation of Republican institutions. A national spirit of liberty can be cultivated more easily than a national spirit of bondage. And if it may be made one of the great prerogatives of education to perform the unnatural and unholy work of making slaves, then surely it must be one of the noblest instrumentalities for rearing a nation of freemen. Mm. So his mm. assumption there is that these <coughs> models, uh, the structures and the tools, the benign influences, he calls them, uh, if I could make it a little more loaded, maybe he could say the neutral aspects of education can be utilized to create uh, a nation of free men as easily as it can be used to make a nation of slaves. Mm. I take issue with the assumption that the forms and structures of education that he's excited about are neutral. Mm. I do think they're not benign. benign. Uh, They may or may not be good or bad, um, but they're not neutral. And so I think that um, that has to be a primary consideration. So Horace Mann is, has this huge, um, unfortunately, false assumption that you can take this model of education, which was designed in some capacity to enslave, and mm-hmm. simply retool it and, and launch it to create um, – a society of free men. Mm. Just put liberty in the machine and then... Right, mm. change uh, the content. So you keep the right. machine, you change the content, everybody's fine. That's not what has what has happened. Mm. Right. So are you saying that the uh, um, Christian schools and even classical schools have essentially loaded in a different cartridge into the same, into the same gun? <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, it is the same, largely. Not all schools are employing it the same way, but sure. we're not, we have not yet reached um, self-awareness when it comes to the structures of education. We're taking a model that's about 150 years old in America, and that's right. from the birth to where we are now. Right. Um, and we're saying, you know, we're not saying anything. We're just adopting it because that's what we know. Uh, but it's got a whole host of causes and, you know, the the Prussian intentions and the intentions of Horace Mann and others behind it. Yeah. And so we tend to be critical of maybe their uh, 
secular aspirations. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're neglecting the fact that the form of those education models is, is non-neutral. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So um, maybe we can talk about some of the particulars. One, one, I think one of the major ones is that aspect of literally how we move through school grades, age, ages, um, um, segregated together. Uh, you know, so you're saying that's only 150 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what, and you have done some different things with Jubilee, um, uh, where you're pushing against that. Um, a lot of people homeschool. So, um, that's kind of what I was asking you about, you know, you're, you're homeschooling, but you yeah. also have Jubilee. And then uh, there's been there. I think there's been a lot of homeschoolers who have, either consciously or unconsciously picked up on what you're talking about. There's um, I think there are at least uh, for me, there are two reasons that I have preferred to not have my kids in traditional five day schools. And it does come down to the structure and the centered around the family life. Yeah. You know, those two things it's to me, it's, it's those two things. And, and again, we've, we do it child by child. There might be one of our kids who really could use a, um, uh, a more traditional school model. So it's not, again, it's not ev- good versus evil that we're talking about, but good versus better and freer family. Um, but it seems like that for, for, for me, it has been that, that model of teaching to the middle along with what often comes with the structure that brings the, um, puts the institution at the center of life for the family versus the family life itself. Um, can you kind of say what your has, your journey has been in a practical way? What has, um, what has Jubilee done? For Mm -hmm. example, is it, um, are the grades together? You know, you, can you tell us about that? Yeah. I mean, I think we need a little bit of a, a backdrop, um, even to that question, because if there's, classical education that includes um, classical forms and structures. Well, there's similarly, um, if we could stretch the analogy, there's a classical view of the family, right? So there's the, mm. there's some kind of, there, there's all these cultural assumptions that we have on a day-to-day basis about how we live. Um, and so education and schooling, as we know at a five day a week uh, schooling model, um, is an invention that's part and parcel with other movements in the 19th century. So Hmm. um, prior to industrialization, there was a thing called a family economy Hmm. where when you had kids, it actually bettered your financial position, the opposite of what we experience now. Right. Usually. Um, (laughs) And so, and you had moms and dads working together in a home. Uh, So it was home-based, family-based, um, and that was essential. So when we started to lose that, when dads left the home for the factory, when they left moms at home with, you know, prepackaged food where they, they simply need to add water and stir it and kids are off somewhere else, you've created this crazy disintegrated, you've disintegrated community at its most fundamental level. Yeah. And so I think you have to realize that that's part of what's going on. So one of the things that matters to me at, uh, and why I've chosen Jubilee is because it's three days a week. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And part of that is reflective of 
a homeschool community. Um, and part of that, that'd be pragmatic, but part of it for us is, well, that's, that's what we want. I mean, that's right. we want our kids home more, uh, more often than not. And so, which in and of itself is something that is a crazy thought in our modern society. You want your kids more at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, the modern idea is uh, uh, parents hate summer vacation. Right. So, all, you know, already that's what counter- do I do with my kids? <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I want my kids at home yeah. more as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I suspect that there's a, a vicious cycle there where if you disintegrate the family, reintegration is painful. And yeah. so you keep disintegrating it and looking for ways to distance and distract yourself from that community. Vacation mm. Bible school, <laughs> summer camp, <laughs> summer school. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's true. But, and, and notice what I just said, vacation Bible school is it's the church that's further disintegrating the faith. They are filling a problem um, with, with, you know, a good laudable goal. And, and for many, it's probably doing something really, um, you know, especially if it's inner city kids and all that, there's, there, I'm not, I'm not bashing vacation yeah, yeah. Bible school, yeah. but in terms of the larger picture of society, that's one more, um, notch in the full circle of deintegration of society that the church is just kind of, well, of course we, you know, there's a hole, let's fill it yeah. instead yeah. of, but the root issue is is deeper, which is a view of society with the family at the center of it, yeah. and that's a harder task. But so a better a better solution than you know just you know sending them somewhere even worse, but not as full right. of a solution as we could really want. Yeah. Yeah, right. right. So so tell me more about yeah. Jubilee. <laughs> so Jubilee is. Uh, it was started by my father and my uh, sister and brother-in-law. My nephew, Henry Paxton, is autistic, and there was very few resources here for him. And then we discovered that when we did start to pull some resources together and create a jubilee, that a lot of the content was just um, arbitrary. Um, hmm. One of the things you'll discover in autistic education is how new it is and how it's evolving, and there's wildly disparate uh, success depending on your approach. Mm -hmm. And so we were learning along the way. And one of the things that became apparent was that the best thing for a special needs kid is not necessarily to be lumped together with other special needs kids. Um, Mm. That's logical enough once you say it out loud, but that's what everybody does. Mm, and it's yeah. partly because the dominant system doesn't allow for special needs. And so they've always been ancillary and uh, sort of a special program. But you go into any special needs classroom and it's the most um, individually focused of the entire school. It has to be. Nobody right. argues with it at that point. You have to have self-pacing or individual <clears throat> consideration. You have to address the student as uh, an individual with their learning disabilities. So that's a, it's a very negative example of what we're trying to accomplish. But positively speaking, um, when you create a, a school like Jubilee, it, it's, it's not difficult to realize the importance of um, decentralizing pedagogy or, or being student-centric versus systems-centric. You don't have the systems-centric option. Mm. Um, So Jubilee's growth, taking neurotypical kids, kids that are neurologically typical, just like it sounds, Mm. 
um, was a initiative to address the problem of um, special needs education that doesn't challenge special needs kids. Mm. Things, things have a tendency to sink to the lowest common denominator. And so you want uh, kids with challenges to be, to be challenged by their peers. Right. And so we started off with taking neurotypical kids, my own, uh, a couple of my own kids included. Um, and we loved the results. We loved, we loved it at a pedagogical level where you have a diversity of learners. Um, we loved it because it allowed our, our model by necessity allowed for the movement of students. Um, they could move, uh, for instance, up in math or down in math, depending on their struggles. And, and not age. And not their age. Right. And special needs education, age is obviously arbitrary. Right. Um, I would argue that it's also arbitrary. Right. I was, I was <laughs> in the say, rest I, of education. It's obvious how arbitrary <laughs> yeah. it is yeah. with special yeah. It, it Yeah. And so, so it puts a point on something that we're talking about at a larger scale, but it yeah. just makes it painfully obvious. And at the same time, yeah. I'm, I'm the same time this is developing and we're trying to figure out how to do it pedagogically and, and the, the administrative aspect as well. Um, I'm cognizant of the conviction in my own household that the marginalized, the poor and the needy in the church are included and considered um, the priority and scripture of of being inclusive of the least of these um, is in the back of my mind. And I'm thinking, I wish there was more opportunities for my kids to mm. have ex- have friends and fellowship with people who are uh, the weaker members of the body of Christ. And so mm. I'm thinking theologically, why is it that a Christian school gets a free pass on excluding the weaker members when it's the opposite of what Paul tells us to do. I understand the sort of presenting issues with including uh, special needs kids in your school, but if you give up the arbitrary structures of education that make it so difficult to individualize, then you do make it possible to have your Christian school reflective of the body of Christ in its Mm. entirety. And so at Jubilee, we're probably, we're mostly, uh, quote unquote, neurotypical, but because of our assumptions and our, our basis in special needs education, we tend to view all kids as special needs. They all, they all, in fact, do have special needs. They have different uh, capacities, different kinds of um, abilities and uh, skill deficits, and it's dependent on where they're coming from and um, trauma they've suffered in the past or cognitive issues that are genetic or what have you from, you know, down syndrome to autism. Um, it's interesting that in, um, my, uh, sister's family, they're very representative of the necessity for schools like Jubilee because they have Henry, but they also have his little brother, John, who taught himself how to read at three. Hmm. Um, he was sight reading, um, just because he was that kind of child. And, and so he would be equally frustrated right. if he had waited until he was X age to go into X class. You know, you're, you are now in first grade by virtue of your age. He would have been so far ahead 
that it would have been an exercise in futility, frustration. So he, he probably would have been just kept at home in that right. situation. Mm-hmm. Likewise with Henry for the opposite reason. Right, mm-hmm. right. And I believe that their family also has kids that are just right exactly where right. the other kids in their age are. So literally, yes. you know, mm-hmm. both ends of the spectrum and right smack dab in the middle. Yeah. Right. It, there's another aspect um, of this integration. You know, there's, um, uh, I think that in the traditional model, there's so much that's focused on the child that it becomes a, a, a to use a pejorative term, selfish, you know, teacher to student, your success, your grade, um, your, your advancement. Um, and, uh, and, and in, in school. And yet when you, um, go out into life in the body of Christ, um, and even into higher education, um, the, uh, when you're really learning something, you're actually teaching. So if you're doing a master's or, you know, doctorate studies, you're often teaching, you know, the undergrads, there's an element of, um, if you're learning anything that, you know, the, by the time you're, you know, you, you, you learn it, you repeat it and you truly mastered it once you've taught it. Um, and it seems like this type of structure actually allows this much more advanced view of learning. That's less selfish, but also more, um, active, uh, uh, active right. and effective, um, at, for the sake of mastery to be built into the learning process. Um, there's, I think there's a great benefit, um, both spiritually and academically, of having, um, you know, not just peers that are right at your level and it's kind of a race for the, you know, the Dean's list. Uh, but, um, instead to have a, uh, to, you have some of that healthy competition, but also the bringing the weaker along with you teach teaching those who are a little slower. Um, is this something you've, have you seen this in, in, uh, seen this phenomenon in, in, your kids? In, in your kids or in at Jubilee? Yeah, I have. I I think it's a thing that has to be uh, fostered and guided. Um, Jubilee is small enough, and it will stay small enough. Um, That's another design element that I think people assume growth will happen, and when it does, you just keep adding numbers, but that creates a higher degree of impersonality. Is that the word? Impersonalism? Impersonalization? Impersonalization, (laughs) yeah. And so... Um, it's a tight knit, small community where, um, I do think it's more conducive to humility because you're not racing, um, in a, in a line of thoroughbreds that are all the same age Mm. and height, et cetera. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's nonsensical to be, or at least it's sinful to be prideful in front of people who are obviously, uh, at a lower level than you are, so it's not it's not conducive to sort of the pride that um, that we see in a lot of uh, age graded systems. It doesn't make sense. It's not mm. cool for a fifteen year old to make fun of a ten year old. I mean, if he does, right, he's right. a bully, right? Yeah, so right. People, people don't feel envious of others who are very different from themselves. Right. The envious. It's only when there's an obvious comparison, right. and it's a very fair comparison that you start to start feel better about yourself or really worse about yourself or right. Uh, so as far as some of the practical details, I, I know that if I'll, I'll bet that if I was a parent who had neuro, neurotypical kids, um, I would wonder, so at, what are some practical things that you do to actually that y'all have the decisions y'all have made at Jubilee to make it possible for 
different kind of learners to be together. The class structure, the schedule, the, you know, it's three days a week, um, placing kids based on their skills. I can tell you the essentials that we've discovered, and this is still a journey um, for us. Um, In one sense, just to ease people's minds, it's no more radical than what every homeschool family does. Oh, so yeah. let's right. let's not call it radical. It <laughs> is a reformation of sorts for uh, the modern form of education, but it's not it's not radical in and of itself. Um, mm. I'm sorry. What was the question? Um, so, what are some of the practical things that y'all do to okay, encourage so here, this individualized? The, yeah, here's a couple of the essentials that we've discovered. First of all, in humanities. Um, we have a two-plus-hour block where the kids are really encouraged to go deep, to make connections. It's it's um, you know roughly half the day, and um, math and science and and other uh, electives or incidentals like lunch and recess are the other half of the day. So. I would never want to go back from that. I mean, you mm. could you could probably divide out subjects within the same classroom and 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 say, okay, now we're doing geography. Um, after we covered, you know, the Franco-Prussian War, we're going to decide we're going to find Prussia and and France, et cetera, on the map, and you know, do all the stuff that you have to do uh, to make those connections. But even that seems like a modern approach. Um, to divvy it up into all these little sub-disciplines. Right? Yeah. They belong I mean, together. It, yeah, it can be done or not, but I think that if it, whether how much you do that um, is it should be up to the teacher in some ways as long as you're doing the essential thing, which is making the connections. Uh, so when I, mm-hmm. when I learned geography as a kid in a typical school, um, it, was, it was this intensive that you did you know, based on the fact that they wanted all the kids to know where the states were. Like it was not um, reflective of a particular time in history necessarily, um, or it could be, but it was incidental. I mean, there's just lots of, uh, there might've been incidental correlations, but they weren't purposeful. And so two uh, two hours plus for your humanities block is really important. Mm. Another essential um, is our, the way we teach math. Um, and I think this could actually be incorporated into um, the, whatever we're calling it, the modern or Prussian model of education, a, a, mm, a typical, typical s- six or seven period day. Um, we teach math classes all at the same time. Mm, so the whole school. The whole school has math at the same time, allowing for students to move. So they can go up or down. They don't have to wait for a schedule change because a lot of the, mm. a lot of the reason that we don't allow that in traditional schools is because it's a scheduling issue. So right. the schedule's hmm. driving pedagogy. Why do we right. do that? Well, hmm. it, if you're swimming in that system, it's just part of the current. But if you question the entire thing, then uh, it's not hard to restructure it. So if you have your, especially in elementary, where if you have, you know, K through sixth grade teachers, and y'all just decide we're going to all teach math at the same time, allowing mobility of our students. Why wouldn't you do that? And right. is that is that especially important for math? It is because math is a cumulative subject. So with humanities, yeah. uh, with language, language is cumulative too. Um, 
but uh, history, you're not trying to accomplish. Um, if you if you skip milestones in history, you can come back to them. Mm. If you skip pre-algebra, you're really in a bad position <laughs> right? <laughs> for algebra, right? So I think it's... Uh, mm. That's, those are a couple of essentials. Uh, certainly being inclusive of special needs kids, there's no reason mm. we shouldn't do that. So it's a conviction and mm. our structures allow for that. Uh, small class size, you know, we're looking at eight to 12 students in a classroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, those are definitely some of the big things that come to mind. Mm. And the three-day model? Is, is the three-day model, part of it? Is it- I mean, you increase your efficiency levels triple or more when you have a class size of eight or 10 kids. Right. Um, so our kids still have homework on Mondays and Fridays, but uh, it leaves us with four day weekends. I don't know of other people who do Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you hear a lot about Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, but be when you disrupt the class time with two days like that, it's not conducive to, mm. to pedagogy. So I think it's more arbitrary that people do that. We don't see any downside yet to the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday model. Mm. Certainly not as a family, but also not from the typical teacher's perspective. It's a common question we get both at Kepler and just generally from the homeschool perspective is, um, you know, there's a class that meets um, uh, once a week with a flipped classroom model or it's, you know, it's homeschool and people are asking about their transcript and transcripts are one of those questions that – uh, uh, um, very that are very common and that uh, make me want to uh, uh, communicate to people strongly. <laughs> Stop being ruled by these arbitrary gatekeepers. Right, right. <laughs> um, but uh, the question is: Well, if I went, if I studied this subject in a traditional school, they would meet five times a week, and you're telling me that you can meet once a week. Now, surely that's not, I can't put that down on a transcript. Surely that's, they're not actually covering the subject, Mm -hmm. Um, but actually, yes, they are. (laughs) We've had, uh, we had a teacher who uh, taught uh, logic twice a week, who had taught for 25 years at a brick and mortar classical school. And uh, after teaching a year, um, he insisted on three days a week at first and then immediately dropped down to two and said this was the most effective way he had taught by using the flip classroom. Mm-hmm. And, to just, and he had done five days. And he said, this is one of my brightest classes I've ever had. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm doing twice a week. And I was trying to get him to once. And now it's taught <laughs> once a week. <laughs> right. But there are so many incidentals, as you were saying, mm-hmm. that get in the way of, of um, that are very efficient in a militaristic Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it depends what your aims are. If you're, if you're moving people through in blocks of a hundred, um, there mm-hmm. is a sense to it, but, um, but that's not what we want for our kids to be, you know, uh, treated like our mortgage mortgages that are sold in, right. <laughs> <laughs> in units standardized. Right. <laughs> um, so the, the, um, uh, the, the, the answer I, you know, I, I give parents is that, um, uh, and it's hard for some to believe this, but that, uh, yes, you can get through as much, if not more real education, real instruction in a tiny fraction of the time, um, uh, whether it's a two or three day model or a flipped classroom model. Yeah. And, and to put a point on it, there's a, 
there's a direct and positive correlation between low class time and efficiency. Mm-hmm. You don't get more efficiency by having kids grouped in 25 together for an hour, five days a week. Um, every teacher knows that you've got, you end up giving them projects or things to do in class. Busy nobody's, work. nobody's delivering five awesome broadcast lectures, uh, six times a day, five days a week. Yeah. Uh, and even if you could, why would you want that? That's still <laughs> more like TV than education. So yeah, the, the, the model has got to adjust. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the innovation that's come out of the tech, technology world, uh, Silicon Valley schools and flip classrooms, the stuff mm-hmm. Kepler is doing, that's actually pushed the awareness of the problems with the dominant model right. as much as anything else has. Right. I learned about the Prussian uh, innovations through Sal Khan's book, One World Schoolhouse. Yeah, I did not know that there, where to look for in history until I read his book. Yeah. And he's coming at it from a very different perspective than um, I am religiously or in terms right. of his model with uh, his his Khan Academy versus Jubilee. Right. But that's where a lot of the discovery has been made. Actually, that is where part of my journey began as well. So in my case, it was um, I, I watched his TED Talk and it was just well, you know, I'd already started creating video courses because I grew up with video courses. Yeah. And then I realized that that the power of what I was creating was, I mean, it was, a um, it changed how I was viewing how to use the video courses um, outside of just a traditional homeschool. Right. So it, it, and it also illuminated what is powerful about some of the homeschool model that was just taken for granted. Um, But after it was after watching um, uh, his, his Ted talk and, and understanding his method, seeing what he was doing that I realized that, um, he, he he was not coming up with anything new. Um, I had not heard about the Oxford met recitation model before that, mm-hmm. but I did mm-hmm. after that, and I started paying attention, realizing that even at New St. Andrews, when we met for a recita- for a lecture on Tuesdays and then small group recitations on Fridays, that was ultimately the uh, a local embodiment of that of that model versus just lecture receiving, receiving and, and then regurgitating um, that flipping that we new St. Andrews in a sense flips the classroom. Right. Um, And and so we've really, that's been a big part of what we've been building. Go ahead. Just maybe to back up just a a little bit for um, some of the less informed. Um, What is the flipped classroom model? Yeah. Big, if you can, and especially coming from um, someone who's created and over, you know, overseeing, been involved with classical curriculum, and you've created flipped classroom yeah. um, courses. What, real quick, what is that? Right. So the flipped classroom or the Oxford recitation model, because for the classical folks who prefer that name, <laughs> because because we all love C.S. Lewis, right? And he did this, so it's got to be good. Of course. <laughs> but um, uh, ba- very basically, uh, whereas in the traditional model, you receive lectures and you 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 are you know you you. Um, uh, receive the lecture or the teaching, and then you you listen, take notes, and then you go do the homework, whether that's reading or working through math problems, and then you take an exam. Um, the flipped classroom um, the, has the 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 lecture content is the homework, and you work through the the problems, whether um, the discuss if it's literature, it's the discussion; if it's math, it's the homework um, at, in a small group setting um, with the teacher as sort of a uh, uh, 
an expert student at your side, you know, guiding uh-huh. you through is in a group way. Um, so the way technology has helped this model. So um, for, for, for Lewis in the Oxford setting, he would, um, you know, he would have them go read books and then they'd come and discuss. Um, the Where technology has helped is that you can create a, um, a, a canned lecture. That's what Salman Khan would do with his videos. And then um, you, so you learn the concepts, what's traditionally five days a week called the lesson mm-hmm. is done at home through a video or, or it can be a book, you know, in terms of I view videos as just another technology like the book, you know, I, <laughs> the book is a technology too. Um, but you learn, you learn the lesson at home and then you come to class and you work through the as a group the 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 problems with a teacher at your side um so very simply put the the homework is in the classroom and the classwork is at home you flip the classroom okay part of that would be necessary with any kind of what the what the time constraint we've put on the teachers you've your time your time with the teacher is capitalized because you don't have five day a week access and right. again mm-hmm. nor do we want that but um if there's if there's uh work that can be done at home then that's the way it's done and the teacher is viewed as a resource uh for um questions and discussion right uh, and mm-hmm. skill skill impartation too so one of the things that we really focus on is is being skill-based in our instruction so even mm-hmm. in humanities they're learning writing skills, uh, the skills and necessary knowledge for history. Mm. Um, every subject has skills and, and skills are, um, are more important in some ways than, than raw content. Mm. And so that's a, a constant focus as well that you really need teachers to help you with. Uh, Daniel, a quick question for you. So we talked about some of the particular ways that Jubilee has structured their classes and their, you know, their their um, levels and the way that they impart knowledge. Um, can you tell us about? So there's, I think I'm seeing some overlap between how Jubilee does things and how um, Kepler particularly mm-hmm. has done things. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the structure of Kepler, the ways that we um, encourage teachers to? Um, to teach their classes and and go through the materials what what sort of overlap mm-hmm. is there between these two approaches yeah so uh kepler is a uh, pl- a classical christian online platform for where independent teachers can offer their classes and the, the that part all by itself um is is not the innovative thing that kepler does the innovative thing is, is that as an independent cl- uh, platform um we focus the we organize um, some of the, to use some of the language we've used here, I've not used this before with Kepler, but we, we organize the minimum amount of incidentals um, such that they don't get in the way of the parents being the primary educator. So there's a mm. sense in one, when we've talked about Kepler, I've said, don't choose, you know, um, don't choose Kepler for the institution, choose it for the teachers. So parents are the primary educators who are coming are the plot. The point of the platform is to uh, empower families to be able to choose the, the teacher they want for various subjects, which means practically when it comes to literature or Latin um, you know, languages or, or math or any subject, we could potentially have multiple teachers teaching different curriculums Different, in different approaches and methods, we've we already have that with Latin, for example. We have a couple different curriculums, 
and a and a parent um, can even commission a class among our our faculty of teachers saying, "Hey, we, there, I don't see this being offered." Um, you know, it's that kind of a, a of, of an approach, um, such that they are um, tailoring it. Uh, we're leading into this would be the overlap um, to um, 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 skill based, need based, family based versus um, getting classes through. You know, you don't you don't come to Kepler and say, "Where's your ninth grade package?" Um, mm-hmm. You can you can sort it by ninth grade, which I would say is our, uh, in a sense, a compromise in and of itself that we have a <laughs> search by ninth grade. I I wish people would not think that way, but uh, you know, we take people where to. they are. <laughs> but the, ultimately, uh, one of the things people have seen is that so many of our classes are. Um, I mean, we have some seventh through twelfth grade a humanities class that's a, that has that much of a range and that's confused mm. some parents what do you mean seventh through twelfth grade how can you teach a class that's accept students in seventh through twelfth grade most of them are three grades um you know ninth tenth and eleventh or something like that um but already that's uh um, that's not what you'll find in most uh, online online uh, or any schools, um, because these are are more about the subjects that are being taught, how they're being taught, and uh, we want um, um, classes that have a variety of levels of of students, uh, you know, to to a degree. But that's what allows you to have um, um, a student who who you know a family where you might have um, a very advanced student in one subjects mm-hmm. uh, and needing to catch up or you know just a little slower in other subjects we can accommodate that just uh, like at jubilee mm. so yeah emphasizing the flexibility for the sit for in, in both institutions with kepler and jubilee trying to emphasize what's best for the family and making the family the primary it's the ones fam- primarily family focus family centered the, the 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 parents are the primary educators and the teaching is not to, if we don't teach to the middle Mm-hmm. Um, so small class sizes as well. We limit it to 12. So eight to 12 is kind of where our, our classes are as well. Um, and, and, uh, you know, you don't have to be in the ninth grade package. <laughs> there, there is no ninth grade package. Um, uh, so, uh, I, one anecdote from, uh, uh, my, our family is, uh, my brother, David, uh, my father started a classical school in, um, in Lyon, France. And, uh, David, we were homeschooled and like most homeschoolers, our grades were all over the place. You know, mm-hmm. you know, this place with math, this place with English, you know, our spelling was down here. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um, and so uh, he loved chemistry and self-taught. He bought chemistry books and chemistry sets and like had a little lab in the basement. And so there was an 11th grade, he was in seventh grade mm. and there was an 11th grade chemistry class. Um, and a very qualified teacher, Dr. Doty, uh, came to teach at the school. And uh, my mother asked if, uh, you know, if, if my, you know, can my son David join your class? Um, he really loves chemistry and would like to take it. And her initial response, coming from a traditional school, is no, no, the concepts are not. Um, attainable to a seventh grade mind it just won't work it's it's you know maybe in a couple years you know just no um we had them over for uh several of the teach faculty over for dinner and dr Doty and david disappeared into his uh um chemistry lab laboratory in our our basement and they were we actually went where where'd they go like they were there for over an hour and she came up and she said 
I'll take him. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, my, when my mom checked in, uh, uh, a month or so after he had, um, you know, was in class, she said, you know, how's it going? And she said, well, David is a little bit of a problem because he asks questions in class that the other students can't, don't understand. And we have to like say, we'll talk about it later. We'll, 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 we'll talk shop later. And so it became, you know, there, this is the, this is, so any family that's been around homeschoolers a lot is going to be nodding their heads. If, if you're a homeschooler and you've been homeschooling for a long time with high schoolers, you're probably nodding your head right now. Uh, everyone knows either has this experience or has known someone where one way or another, there's just, there's the, where <laughs> you can't teach to the middle perfectly there. You're going to miss everyone. And this is a, a, an usually, uh, almost, uh, comical, <laughs> uh, um, um, example of it, but there, but there are, um, in my case, I was slow to read. So mm. I was the other way around. I didn't truly read till I was 10 years old, mm. uh, being homeschooled. I never really knew it until I was a teenager and I realized, Oh, ha, huh, I was slow, <laughs> you know, but I didn't, I had didn't, no labels, you know, and then I went to New St. Andrews and was reading no problem there mm. ended up mm. reading the huge stacks of books they throw at you there. Um, in other words, I was not harmed. I was, I, I wasn't ready. Um, uh, very same, same program, same method as all my siblings, but I just wasn't quite ready at, mm. at the typical time. And, uh, the homeschool allowed me to just go along my pace. Uh, Jubilee would have been something that would have accommodated, uh, accommodated that. And when I was ready to go, I yeah. took off. And frankly, like, thank goodness that you and your parents recognized, okay, so he's, you know, not doing good in this one area, but you, that the fact that you couldn't read until that late didn't hold back the rest of your no. education because you were able to right. personalize. Right. Yep. Yep. That's right. Well, and, I, and now we published a literature curriculum yeah. with a lot of reading. <laughs> <laughs> the deep irony. <laughs> well, um, and I, and I, to push the point though, if you had been, in a traditional school yeah. and you had been labeled and yep. you had been told you have this deficiency and we don't know what yep. to do with you. Um, that is a formative experience. It really is. And we can avoid it. Yeah. So when I say I didn't realize that I was slow to read quote unquote until I was a teenager, I really mean that I, there was a moment <laughs> when no I was idea. maybe 14 where I went, Oh, <laughs> and and i i just i think my mom is a saint for pulling that off <laughs> but uh but it, it, incredible patience and just you know taking me along and um but it had i i do recognize that had i been in a good tradition you know i say good you know <laughs> do you know a, a good good classical christian school i probably would have uh flunked out and that would have I don't know how that would have affected me, but I don't think it would have been good. So, mm, right. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, I've got, so we've mostly been talking about comparing hybrid models, um, Kepler and Jubilee um, in their spheres. We've mostly been comparing those to um, your typical you know, public school or classical Christian school that has a lot of the same assumptions. Um, both of you homeschool your kids. How does this hybrid model compare with homeschooling and how does it um, improve on homeschooling? 
at least and and of course now we're probably going to really be getting into a very subjective you know every family has to find the right balance for their own schedule and their own needs and everything but how has um being part of these more um organized systems how's that helped your your kids and your families well for for us um Jubilee is not, it's a hybrid in the sense that it's, uh, it's, a, it's a different um, approach to traditional education. It is not different in its uh, completeness. So with Jubilee, I am, whether I should be or not, I'm not actively teaching my kids that are at Jubilee. Uh, it's a complete program. So they go, oh, okay. it's three days a week, but that's, that's because of the efficiencies we've realized, not because two days of the week, mom and dad have to help. Now, mm-hmm. uh, they, I would, if my kids needed it, obviously they have homework on, um, the weekend, which, you know, it's a four day weekend at that point, but typically on a Monday and Friday, they'll, they'll get their schoolwork done, mm-hmm. uh, with or without some of our help in the same way that any traditional learner and traditional school would, would learn. So Jubilee is not a hybrid or a flipped model in that sense, like Kepler would be. Okay. That's a good, good but, hybrid is and, and not, actually, not five week. But, so right. I, I would say that Kepler is actually similar to Jubilee in that you can take one class or you can take five class, you know, full load. If you're taking full load, it's exactly like Jubilee in that uh, parents may or may not help their kids with their homework, but it's complete mm-hmm. instruction. Um, we're, we're, so um, we're actually doing Whitehorse Hall, which is a homeschool co-op and is, um, it is a help to homeschooling versus a taking on of the, um, uh, of the subjects and it doesn't do all subjects either. So it really is just to help structure. Um, so that's what we're doing with our, with our younger kids uh, starting this fall, Edmund my oldest, who's uh, uh, going to be 12 um, is d- taking some of his first Kepler classes. Um, and so with those subjects, that teacher is taking that load. Um, so one mm-hmm. of the things that homeschoolers have faced um, uh, m- more so in the past um, especially, you know, I'm a second generation homeschooler when, when it, you know, the early pioneers of homeschooling had, you know, it, they were brave. <laughs> they had nothing to work with. Um, and so it was five day school with all the incidentals we're talking about. And just like, that's the way to go, whether it's Christian or not, it was, it was school mm-hmm. versus homeschool. And the two were extremely different, extremely separate. Now, you know, we have to define what we mean here. Well, right. okay, uh, there's all these gradations, and it's a wonderful thing. We, right. we have these these different models. Um, when Even when it comes to the curriculum we produce at Roman Roads Press, for example, the, the experience of a homeschooler who buys a textbook or just has a pile of books and has to become a teacher and a pedagogue. And, you know, <laughs> um, of 25 years ago, what are we doing here? You know, they're the people that ended up writing books <laughs> that are now bestsellers today. Um, though, those are, um, um, we, you know, we're creating materials that, that take a lot of the load off of the parents. So even with our do it at home homeschool curriculum, like old Western culture, we invite parents to not to sit down and learn alongside their kids. Like they're, they don't have to study the night before and then lecture to their kids. They sit down and learn as fellow, you know, more mature 
students mm. as much as you know or or they can just have their kids watch the videos you know there's mm. there's um um, there's a lot of opportunity, uh, flexibility there. Um, with with Kepler, you, it's a home centric, um, uh, hand picked. Like parents are deeply involved with who's teaching their kids, how they're being taught, when what they're being curriculum taught. Curriculum? Do you want what curriculum? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but the teacher is doing the teaching for that subject that they choose. So if you do all subjects at Kepler, um, it, it would be like Jubilee, mm-hmm. um, where you have. Um, uh, you know, it's a home centric life that the parents are deeply involved in the crafting, but is um, but is ultimately not homeschool in the raw. I'm doing everything, right. Every including the lesson re- plans. Mm-hmm. Right. So. But so but that's been a arrested. That's been a good thing for your family, for at, at least some of your kids. Yeah, absolutely. We've done uh, homeschool uh, co-ops as well. Uh, again, I, I went into the education of my children with the assumption that they would need different things at different times, that there yeah. wasn't a one size fits all. Um, it, that can include a five day a week yep. factory model education. I'm not, again, I'm, mm. it's, oh, yeah. it's just a tool. Um, yeah. it's not a neutral tool, but it's a tool. <laughs> and so absolutely. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, um, I, as we were thinking about this podcast, I wanted to make sure that it wasn't communicated that we're, um, it's not you know evil versus good or anything like that. Very it's much. it's what I what I want people to parents to realize is is the uh, what we've called incidentals uh, here mm-hmm. uh, to to not realize that they're that they are powerful. They are you know um, they're not a necessary part of education. Mm. That they could fit certain students and then be really detrimental to others, mm. and um, and the, so that's part of the choice you can make. So mm. yeah, a, a five day school might be a good thing for you, you know you you when you're going for the middle and you miss you might miss most people. Well, you'll also hit some. It may be perfect yeah. for some. Oh yeah, and for different every families have different scenarios, but many students will be benefited through the dropping of some of these incidentals, mm-hmm. the dropping of some of these structures as well. So yeah. um, there well, are the, so many options out there. Yeah. And the, I mean, the, I think the cat's out of the bag in terms of realizing that um, the popular, there's been a higher degree of popularization for the criticisms that we're talking about and that huge space in the middle between homeschool and, right. and, and uh, five day a week program is being filled. So you're right. seeing a, classical 2.0 a classical 3.0 developing in different places university model um, flipped classrooms uh, just partial week programs similar to jubilee Um, and so there there's a lot of really fine educators out there trying to fill that space either by necessity or by design yeah i think classical education is destined to look very different in the next few years yep it's just it's just too innovative and it's too uh, retrospective at the same time. We're, right, we're, it's a fearless community that that doesn't yeah. want to do things because they've always been done that way, yeah. and so they're going to change. Mm. Yep, nice. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> as as kind of a closing uh, question for both of y'all, um, say you're a family who's in a five day school and that's kind of just what's what's working best for y'all, um, but you're hearing out some of these criticisms. What would you suggest families do if they're, if a five day model is really what works best for them, but they want to avoid some of those incidentals. Um, mm. What, 
Is, are, is there anything that can be done or are there other options? What can, what can families do? Yeah, I, I have a thought there. Um, there's, um, if you're in a traditional school, the, the smaller the school, the easier this will be. Um, the larger the school, you'll mo- the more you'll see there are some sacred things that may not be touched. And that will actually, mm-hmm. you'll know where these incidentals are, are perhaps entrenched. <laughs> but um, it, um, you re- realize that, uh, so with, with what happened with my brother happened in the context of a five-day school. Hmm. Um, small school, very small missionary school overseas um, where where that was able to happen. But uh, don't um, realize your kids are are unique they're made they may have strengths and weaknesses and so even in a five-day school there's ways to 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 uh, uh you, you know there'll be scheduling issues perhaps but there's there's ways to say you know if you're if you're staying in the five-day school model um you know where um um where might my, my child thrive by um uh, playing to their strengths and not mm. just playing to the middle. Yeah. So, uh, you know, be open if, if, ask, maybe, yeah. maybe he, maybe your child is really good at chemistry and should be, mm-hmm. and that can, can be fostered early. Um, maybe uh, by, if you're, if you're me uh, and you're going to, you know, make sure that you're not trampled because you weren't quite ready to read at the right time, you know, whatever that, that may, you know, if it was as extreme as my case, mm. I'm not sure that would work. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. But, um, but yeah, their their administrations. Um, uh, the larger the school, the more resistance you'd probably get. Mm-hmm. Uh, but be involved with the school, and uh, I think, as Resty said, there's going to be. Um, it's a fearless community th- that are um, wanting that are. Are in the classical education for the right reasons, mm. and so sometimes there are practical barriers that that uh, distinguishing between incidentals and true philosophy, mm. um, and then pressing on on those. I think a good school who's there for the right reasons may even over time slowly even see um, start to distinguish those things and move in that direction. So, um, uh, yeah, um, acknowledge these things and then taking your kids where they are, mm. see if, see, get to know the teachers, see where the, your kids should be. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and, and make sure they're, they're not be falling in the cracks of the middle. Mm. Yeah. I think it very much depends on the family situation. There, there are some families where I would advocate, um, pulling your child out, uh, for their own soul's sake. Mm. Um, some parents think that you have to see the system through. You have a tr- sort of trust in the system, mm. and I think that's misplaced. I, I think you yeah. need to ask your ask uh, the question: What does my child need? There is not one right way to do this. Whether that's uh, any particular model, Jubilee or homeschool or Kepler or anything, there's not one right solution. Uh, but there is the primary consideration of the person in front of you. What do they need? Yeah. And maybe mm-hmm. as incidental as it is, maybe it's the peer structure. Maybe the peers just need to be avoided, even though the education's great. That's super incidental in one sense, but no less formative yeah. than the education component. And so that's all those things we need to be reflective about. And as you approach, so let's say you you don't have that sort of pull them out uh, reason um, I do think you're do, you're not doing the school a service by assuming they won't change. Mm. 
Yeah. Because schools are changing. Uh, hmm. And I think that giving them the opportunity to answer the question, you know, why don't we just do math at the same time? Yeah. Uh, so my kid can be in first grade, but in second grade math. Or why don't we do a two-hour humanities block? Is it just arbitrary scheduling that we don't do that? Um, and if mm-hmm. so, can we have we really exhausted the the means, the tools at our disposal to to fix that? Um, do we have to have uh, five days a week? Do we have to have? I mean, I think I think until administrators administrators are typically um, Im- immersed in the problems of daily administration. They're not stepping out like visionaries and saying, mm. wait, why do we do it this way? They're, they're more worried fires. about how to do what they have to do well. And I think that you have to have other people asking the question, wait, why do we do this again? Mm. And hopefully in a peaceable way. But um, I think that's really important, especially right now yeah. as more resources and the history becomes available to the average parent. Mm. One of the things I've uh, discovered um, through talking to some of the people who have been involved in the resurgence of classical education for you know decades uh, is I'll ask questions like, well, why why is it this way? You know, and often you'll you'll hear questions like, you know, why does doctrine come after um, the uh, you know history? Well, eighteen years ago, um, that was the only time slot I had because I was working a second job, and then. You know, years later, oh, that's the way the that mm-hmm. school did it. Therefore, all the schools follow. All the schools right, follow. follow right history, it's yeah. sometimes very arbitrary reasons for how some of these early schools did things that are you know even more arbitrary or incidental than even the the Prussians. <laughs> you know, I had a second job, or that was uh, you know it was the lunch, you know whatever you know whatever reason. So there's um, um, there's often habit is often the the answer just going with what's happened before and to to things that mm-hmm. are really getting in the way of serving the school better so absolutely i i agree you know um don't assume they won't change and if they won't change is is it habit and you, you know change is hard if it's a big institution um i think some large schools should divide into smaller schools and you know maybe that's the answer and um yeah, that's it's not always easy, but it's worth it's worth pushing on. Yeah, Rusty, when you came in to have this uh, to join us for this podcast, you have a, a big stack of books on the table. Yes, um, would you be able to tell us for for the the readers who want to learn more about the history and the theory, the philosophy of education? Um, what books do you have, and what resources would you suggest? Yes, I am. I'm eager to divulge my stack because it's not big enough, and I'm not the person to figure out the details of all this. So um, I have a book that I found uh, online. I think it's out of print called The German Conspiracy in American Education by <laughs> Gustavus <coughs> Olinger. That's uh, from 1919. Hmm. Um, I alluded already to Horace Mann's actual report, and there's a host of other things that are similar to his work at the same time, the educational tour, um, report of an educational tour by Horace Mann, mm. also, as far as I know, out of print. Uh, mm. Prussia and the German System of Education by Arthur Bott. Um, I have a book called The Myth of the Common School, Charles Leslie Glenn Jr. Um, I have a book by John Taylor Gatto. He's certainly more of a, 
uh, popular level writer. He's actually the one who I think Sal Khan ended up quoting mm. um, from uh, One World Schoolhouse. And so there's there's and One World Schoolhouse uh, disrupting class uh, is a good one on uh, techno- technological innovation. Um, so there's a number of them out there, but I, you know, there's not a singular text that sort of says, here's what happened. Mm. Um, so somebody can go write that. That'd be great. And, uh, and tell us what happened. (laughs) Did you have one? Yeah, it's, um, it's just one I've been reading recently that has been, uh, an eye opener. It's called de-schooling society by Ivan Illich. And I, I give a little bit of a warning with it in that, um, I, I don't necessarily agree with his conclusions, but boy, does he put his finger on the problem. <laughs> so um, he's a, um, uh, um, he's, he's the, what he really puts his finger on is just the um, uh, institutionalization aspect of what the American experiment in education has been and, and its negative effects. And so um, I think the classical school uh, renewal movement um in, in the, is going in generally actually in the right direction we've we've we have some of these um uh institutionalization barnacles that we need mm-hmm. to take off a bit <laughs> um but ultimately the you know that's why i was i was talking in the beginning about the you know what is the point of the education what is classical education you know the the um inheriting the humanities um it's education and wisdom and virtue. You know, there's, it's about the formation of a soul mm. um, about living well and not about cogs in the machine, not cogs about machine. or defending, part defending of, the Republic, like man's horse man said. Right. Mm. Right. Um, or, or, you know, creating soldiers or, you know, these mm. are, there's a lot of, uh, um, um, uh, goals that, that, the, that, um, the goals of the classical education movement are fairly united actually. And mm. so that's, that's a very encouraging thing. Mm. Um, uh, so, uh, being, we can argue about um, barnacles and ways to improve it, but I think that that uh, ultimately, what is happening in classical education is more formidable than we can even realize on the inside mm, as yeah. we see some of our differences. It is very encouraging yeah. what's happening in classical education. So, ah, on all sides, I agree. If you're interested in this topic, I would recommend um, checking out uh, a book that we actually have in our our bookstore on our website called So You Want to Start a School by Brian Daigle. Mm-hmm. Don't forget to check out the Jubilee School. At- Very practical application. That book is yeah. almost a to-do list if you're going to be starting a hybrid model school. His, his is a two-day, but uh, yeah, just highly recommend it. Ah, very good. Don't forget to ju- check out the Jubilee School at thejubileeschool.com to learn more about their approach and teaching philosophy. There's a link for both of those in the show notes. Rusty, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Degressio podcast. Until next time, read your Bible, read a good book, and keep inheriting the humanities. <laughs>